and welcome to another episode of the Growth Podcast. I am really excited today to talk about some psychological principles that growth teams should know. I have two guests with me. I have Dan and Louie from Growth Design. How's it going, guys? Amazing. Amazing, too. That is great. Super excited to be here at the conference. Yeah, yeah. We're we're sitting in a podcast booth at Drift's Hypergrowth Conference here in Boston. So you might hear a little bit of noise in the background, but no worries. The, the main content is here, and we're going we're gonna to talk into the mics. So that is the high level of what we're talking about. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves, give the audience a, a sense of who you are and, uh, and what you guys do? Sure. Go ahead, sure. man. Yeah. So I used to be an aerospace engineer back in the days. Then I kind of got bored of building machines all by myself in a lab. I wanted to feel closer to the customer. So that's why I went back to school. I did a master in design and I've worked in product companies ever since. Early on, I realized that psychological, like that uh, human behaviors were really important for products. And that's why I've been studying uh, psychology ever since. That's it. Sweet. My name is Dan Benoni. Not to be confused with, uh, with Bilotti, I guess. <laughs> uh, but no, so I'm a civil engineer by trade. Very similar story to Louis, actually. Mm. So graduated, realized that I didn't want to do that, wanted to get closer to the customer. Uh, became a self-taught designer and startup founder. The latest venture being uh, OfficeLife.com. So yeah. Very cool. And, uh, and, and these guys put out some amazing case studies. That's how I, I came across them in the first place. And so this content, they did a ton of, ton of prep to like really think through some of the stuff we're gonna talk through today, which I think is amazing. I am so excited for this. And if you're <laughs> listening, you should be as well. So we're gonna talk about eight psychological principles that growth teams should know. And is there anything you wanna say before we, we, we jump into number one? Actually, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we started growth design because we realized that most people tend to focus on the very top level tactical stuff, but we tend to forget the basics. And as, as, as long as you don't get the basic psychological principles behind it, you can make a lot of growth experiments, but you're going to miss out some very important points. And so that's why we want to bring awareness back to the foundations, yeah. how people behave, because there might be a lot of different SaaS in, you know, in a couple of years, but humans are still going to be humans. And so that's why we're really trying to educate as many people as possible around that. So. No, exactly. And as uh, DC said uh, earlier in the conference, customer experience is really the next frontier for all product companies. Mm. So that's, that's part of why also we, we started Growth Design. We wanted to educate the product teams all around the world to build experiences for their customers. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's a big part because we believed, well, we worked together in the uh, past few years. So we, we saw a few points uh, and a few pitfalls in the product company mm -hmm. where we didn't listen enough to the customer. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we, that we want to switch with growth design and really uh, focus on educating uh, product teams around the world. Yeah, that's great. And and I think the the point of like knowing these things and being aware of them is really important because you can get so wrapped up in the tactics of like, all right, like we're gonna try this, we're gonna do this experiment, we're gonna run this thing that it's so hard sometimes to just like slow down and think about what is the thing that is going to make this work? Like what is the foundational principle that's gonna make this work? And so let's let's jump into number one. So number one here is around mental model. Dan, what is what is mental model? Yeah, so a mental model is a perspective of how the world works. And the word the word perspective is actually very important because it's not necessarily the truth. It's just how people perceive how things work. Okay. Um, mm. An example of that would be uh, actually with Drift. 
you have assumptions around how people behave around messaging. Mm -hmm. And that's something that DC actually spoke about back in the days uh, on Seeking Wisdom, saying that the evolution of messaging as a trend made it a lot easier for Drift to be positioned as it is today. so that's one mental model. Another one would be Trello with how they use boards and lists and you know columns and cards. Yeah. It seems obvious today, but the truth is that was completely novel uh, when this started back in, I think it was 2011. So just knowing how those things work and how a to-do list can be looked at in a format yeah, yeah. of cards and lists is a totally different mental, mental model. Yeah. So we did a case study actually on Trello and I had the chance to talk with the gentleman who was responsible for the growth team there. Mm-hmm. And he told me the whole backstory about it, which is super interesting because yeah. they were struggling to get people to understand what a card was, what a list was, and how they mm. could be used either for content marketing calendar all the way to wedding planning or trip planning, you know? So making sure that you start from where your customer is starting as a mental model, yep. understanding what they look at and what they're thinking about helps you a lot designing the best growth experiments because then you can craft an experience that's specialized to get them step-by-step step yep. to understanding your product. Right, so, so it's almost like, of course, put the customer first and then think about how are they thinking about this thing or what is something else that they use that's similar uh, in style or workflow that you can break down the like core components and then you can build something that aligns really well with that and the idea is that it makes it easier for the customer to adopt it or use it because it's it's like, oh, right, and yeah, of course, I you know I think of my to-do list like this and then I check it off and oh great, this tool has a, a way that I can check it out, like that kind of thing. Bingo, yeah. no, exactly. exactly. And Airtable would actually be another example. Yeah. They obviously use the mental model of a spreadsheet to get people to understand where yeah. to start from. But then they have like almost other dimensions around it of how it could be used. So I know you spoke about how it's very useful also for growth experiment tracking yeah. and, and so on and so forth. So maybe we could talk about some action item around that because I feel like it needs to be actionable. And that's one thing that we want to make sure people listening to this podcast yeah, yeah. <laughs> really realize it's not just like the theoretical stuff behind it, yep. but how they can apply it. I love that. So action item number one regarding mental models would be to do some user interviews and ask people to like to think out loud user interviews mm-hmm. basically getting people to say out loud hey you know here i'm thinking about what's happening there i don't understand this step and so on and you'll see that you get some nuggets of information in there that lets you peek into their mental models mm-hmm. and from there you have to acknowledge the fact that you have a curse of knowledge that yeah. you have a lot of assumptions around how things work and from there, you can try growth experiments that bridge the gap of yep. those mental models all the way to your product. Yeah, that's great. And and it's important, I like what you said there about the thinking out loud. There's a difference between them telling you the answer to a question that you ask mm-hmm. and them explaining like, I'm gonna click this now because I think that it's gonna do that. Like that's very different than uh, why did you click it, right? That's like a hindsight. I clicked it and now I know what happened and so I can like fit, you know, retrospectively fit what I thought was gonna happen to what actually happened. Instead, you know what they're gonna do beforehand so that you can better build what's gonna happen next. Bingo. That's great. All right, let's jump to number two, which is around social proof. Yes, so social proof, it's everywhere, right? Yep. We base pretty much all our decisions in life based on social proof. Mm -hmm. If you go to a restaurant, you look at Google reviews, right? You'll pick the the highest rate on Google reviews. So it's fascinating because since a very young age, we look for validation from others. And especially in a new situation or a new context, we tend to rely heavily on what other people do or, or did. 
Uh, so that's social proof and we, like I said, we see it everywhere. If you shop on Amazon, you'll have reviews. If, like I said, if you're looking for a restaurant and in one of the case studies that I did on Spotify, mm. the, the new podcast edition, it was actually a lack of social proof that made me kind of hesitated with, hesitating with um, what I was going to listen to. Yeah, yeah. So I had like, a f I was on discovery mode. Yeah, yeah. And I was just looking for a new podcast to listen to, and basically there was no ratings, no reviews, or so anything. So it just felt like you were looking at a, like any of them could be as good as the other, what makes you think that this one's the one to spend? Exactly, on? exactly. Yeah. And, and a podcast is somewhat an, of an investment, right? Yeah. You're gonna listen yeah. to it for like, I don't know, 15, 30 minutes. Yeah. So if you don't have any social proof, then it's kind of awkward or, or just, not awkward, but just just misleading yeah. in a bit. And so action item for this. So if you want to build trust early for your product or for your app, that's that's one thing you need to do. Try to build social proof. And, and if you want to go a bit deeper, try to personalize the social proof as well. Mm -hmm. Don't just say, there's a bunch of people that actually did that. Right. But if you can say, there's actually a bunch of people like you, just yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. like your target customer, right? That that share the same hopes and pains yeah, as yeah. you are. That's that's a plus as well. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that we, we've talked about at Drift is like, how can we uh, personalize social proof to the type of user that's viewing, right? Because it's not just about, oh, 300 other people also did this thing. It's like, no, 300 other people that are like you, that have, you know, do your job and think the way that you do also use it. Then you're like, oh, this is for me. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. I think you did a growth experiment around that, right? With uh, yeah. Mad Kuru and Kuru yeah, yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, we figured out the type of visitor and then we were able to match that to the most likely role that that visitor was in and then we would customize the website based on that role and there was very different social proof like there was a wall of tweets for one type of role it was one big quote from a founder for you know if the visitor was a founder exactly amazing. like same thing if you're selling an online course and you're a front-end engineer and like if if you see a testimonial from a front-end engineer that says hey this course solved right. all my all my problems then it's 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 good yeah that's awesome. I love how we're how we're also like tying it into into action item stuff. That's that's cool. <laughs> All right, number three: external versus internal triggers. Yes. So triggers are a prompt for users to take action. Mm -hmm. An external trigger has the information about the action to take within the prompt itself. Yeah. So for example, let's say you go on Facebook and you see an ad that says, I don't know, man, like buy Drift now. Yeah. The action to take is extremely clear. So an external trigger could be lifecycle emails, could be a, a phone notification, could be a billboard alongside the road. Mm -hmm. An internal trigger has the information for the action to do within the association through the memory of the user. Okay. So that could be a place, that could be people, that could be an emotion. Yeah, yeah. So for example, let's say uh, I tell you, I don't know, man, the, the distance between the surface of the Earth and Moon is a billion miles. I don't know. Yeah. Then you're probably going to be like, eh, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah, right, that's a lot of. And fun. what are you going to do? I'm gonna try to figure out, like, all right, well, what is the, well, like, what does that fit into? I'm really gonna go Google it or, yeah. Bingo. Yeah. And so you were unsure. Yeah. You went to Google it. Yep. Yeah. So the emotional trigger of what happened there made you take an action. Yep. Yep. 
So he, what happens is that most people tend to focus a lot on external triggers. Yeah. And they rely on that for retention. So they send a bunch of emails. Yep, they have yep. like, you know, day one, day three, day seven, day 14, day 28. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you sign up for something and then you get like, <laughs> oh, you get all these notifications on your phone and your email. Yeah. So and the problem with that is actually a good thing yep. if those external triggers are aligned yep. with the yep. internal trigger. Yep. And that's one of the very, there, there's very few companies that do it right. Yep. I saw across all the case studies that we did, Duolingo actually surprised me a lot where when you sign up, they actually try to get why you want to learn a language. Yeah, yeah. They realize that about a third of their users want to do it for travel purposes and, and et cetera. And then they use kind of close to that copy afterwards to rehook you yep. and make you consistent using the consistency bias around the desire that you had initially. So they will say, hey, yeah. do you still want to learn your language? Uh, so you want to learn Spanish for your trip or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one example of aligning external triggers with internal triggers. Yeah. The other part that's interesting is respecting people's time. So Duolingo actually auto stops, they, they auto pause oh, the notifications. This. Yeah, yeah. And at first I was like, why would they do this? You know, because right. they send you a notification after you ignore some of them in a row. Mm -hmm. And they say, uh, hey, you know, we realize that this is not really working for you. We'll mute them. And it's brilliant when you think of it, because if they did not do that, I would probably you know, remove the application right, or turn notifications off. And you're, yeah. Exactly. And so by, the, yeah. by them doing this, they actually take a proactive mm -hmm. action on that to make sure that they respect your time sending you a message. And it actually made me want to keep practicing because I was like, hey, no, don't leave me alone. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, I still want to <laughs> practice. And so that's an example of it. In terms of action item for, for number three, uh, for the triggers, I would say try to figure out what are the hopes, pains, fears, dreams, barriers of your mm -hmm. users, what we call the customer desire map. Identify them as best as possible and then try to hook that through internal triggers. And then do, an, uh, like for example, if you're working on activation and you want to work on the onboarding, try to have an onboarding that's goal-oriented. Yeah. And if you know the, the main, most popular options that people have in terms of why they would want to use your product, yep. try to show that upfront so that people have a vested interest to keep going. And then your external triggers, email reminders, et cetera, will right. be a lot more efficient. Right, like if you were building a health app, it would be very important and useful for you to know why is someone downloading this health app? Is it because they want to train for a marathon? Is it because they want to lose some weight? Like that, if you can align that purpose with all of the triggers that you set up, I feel like you'd have way better shot at getting people to engage with your product. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. All right. Let's jump to number four. Number four is priming. Yes, priming. So priming is actually the foundation of all ads when you think about it. It's by definition, it's just a subtle visual or verbal suggestion that influences you later on when you're ready to take action. Mm -hmm. So it literally plays into your short-term short, short memory. And once you're ready to, not ready, but once you, you have that nudge, yep. you, have, you have something really fresh in your mind that you can just, you're already prime, right? Yep, yep. An example of this is billboards on the highway. Yeah. Basically, if you see a McDonald's ads, for sure there's gonna be a McDonald's like in the next- Somewhere, yeah. In, in the next one or two exits, right? Yep. We actually have our own, well, we did the, the same experiment for us. We had an OG image. So, so people were sharing our blog on, yeah. on Twitter, on LinkedIn and everything. And we just had our logo, right, as an OG image. And we decided like, this is kind of a boring, well, it's good for our brand, right? Right, right. But it's, it doesn't really, 
prime the person that we have case studies that are interactive yeah, yeah. and that like we do storytelling and everything. So we decided to actually show the logos of all the case studies that we did yeah. to prime people up. So when they see the link, they they actually know that like there's something coming there. Yeah, yeah. So that's one example as well. Mm. Another one was when I did the Superhuman ca uh, case study. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Superhuman, but basically it's an email service and they have these one-on-one -on -one onboarding calls. Mm -hmm. And the person that I was talking to during my onboarding call, at the end she says, hey, you can expect an email from Raul, which is their CEO. You can expect an email from him every day in the next two weeks. And yeah. he's gonna show you like new features that we didn't cover during the call. Yeah. So that's, that's another form of priming. Cause yeah. then I was like, okay, now, for sure the next day I'm gonna open that email. Yeah, I'm yeah. Like already into Cause you the, know, yeah, yeah. Exactly, huh. exactly. So, so part of it is, part of it is expectation setting. And another like way of thinking about priming is it like, it, it plants a seed in someone's head. Like if you go back to your McDonald's billboard example, you pass it, you see it, maybe you don't think about it much, but in the back of your head, you're like, oh, McDonald's fries taste good. <laughs> and then five minutes later, you pass a McDonald's, and you're like, oh, I'm kind of hungry. And then you- Exactly. Just, yeah. As soon as that question comes up in your head, like, am I yeah. hungry? Then you're gonna, you're gonna look into right. your short-term memory and you're gonna right. see like that McDonald's ad, and yeah. you're probably gonna respond to that. So that's it for priming. If you have one uh, action item for it is, find the key action in your in your flow mm -hmm. and just find ways to prime people before that nudge yeah right and if you can couple that that priming with a clear benefit yeah that's even better so like let's say you have a home screen you can prime visually with like images and everything but if you can if you can couple that with a clear benefit for that person yeah then it's going to be the holy grail that's awesome. I love the holy grail of, <laughs> of growth possibilities. I mean, this and, and priming too is one of those things that I believe it's in um, the book Influence yeah. by um, Chaldini. 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 Yeah. yeah, amazing book. I'm sure some of this stuff you've pulled from his principles and, and others. Awesome. So let's jump to the next one, which is the peak end rule. Yeah, so site tip number five, peak end rule. It says that we judge past experiences almost entirely based on their peaks okay. and how it ended. So a cooking example of that would be, let's say you, actually it happened to me recently. So I went to a restaurant, mm -hmm. the food was okay. It was actually average. Yeah. But the waiter that came to us was extremely friendly. He told us this funny story about how he went to Italy and then he offered us some like apéro spritz. So we had a very good time with him. I yeah. remember that story. And the, the way that it ended is that he brought us inside and showed us this magnificent part of the hotel that's normally closed. Mm -hmm. and. That's the thing I'm talking about today. You right. Know I mean, right. I'm not talking about the, I actually don't remember what I ate that day. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so that's a physical example. Yeah. But the in terms of digital products, uh, there's uh, Mailchimp actually that does it very well. So when you get to the end of a campaign, they have this small funny animation with like a finger over a button that says, "Are you ready to send oh, it?" Oh yeah, you I remember. I think it's good. Yeah. And so they have that moment, and it's actually a, extremely important. You you could look at it and say, "Oh, they just wanted to do some you know funny brand stuff." Yeah, yeah. But the truth is, they want to highlight how important that moment is, and yeah. they want to make you remember that hey, you did something great and you did it and somebody else was with you throughout mm, that process. Yeah. Mm. So that's one example. Another one would be, uh, we did a case study on Zapier. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you go through the upgrade process or you, you pay for it, 
they have like confettis that fall. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know if you remember that one. Yeah. And so when you get to that phase, again, it might look like, oh, they just wanted to do an animation. But the truth is they want to take your focus away from, hey, we just paid $156 in our case, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, for that monthly to say, hey, let's celebrate the fact that you're now saving time. Yeah. And let's focus on that win. And for that reason, you're more likely to remember that part than just shitting out $150. Yeah. <laughs> so action item for that would be to map out the customer journey of people. And so if you want examples for that, every single one of our case studies, except for two, I think, have customer journey at the end. Yeah. So basically just take the key moments, highlight them based on the emotion of the person throughout the whole journey. And through that, try to find some, well, first, where are the valleys and try to nudge them upwards. Yeah. But then for the peaks, try to make sure that you can offer something else to make them even more delightful. And make sure that the end of your curve for your customer journey ends as high as possible because that's actually more important than some of the stuff before. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend of mine who says that he like he's like everybody is into first impressions but what matters most to me is a last impression and that, that's like part of the peak end rule right like when you walk away from something you usually latch on to like what was the last thing that you had there right it's the whole like bad taste in your mouth do you, do you think that like should people focus like all right so first you find you find where your peaks are and then should you like really, really focus there and get it amazing? Like, can you kind of forget about the other parts? Or is it like, how do you think about that trade-off? I'd be curious to hear what you think about that, uh, Louis. The way that we see it and when we analyze and give a score to the case studies that we do mm -hmm. is we look at the deepest valleys mm -hmm. because those are problematic, you know, situations yeah, yeah. in the journey. And then we look at the peaks and say, how could they have made it better? Yeah. And was that proportional to the information that they wanted to convey and the emotional state that they wanted to convey. And the last part is actually the end. So in the case for Zapier, they did a great thing with the confettis, but and I, I won't spoil it, but at the end of the, the case study, they did not answer my need. And so I got to the last step and I was like, well, did it work? Like, did we get what we actually paid for? Yeah. And I had to go through support and then their documentation and send an email. And, and that's the part that I remember now from it. So they have a great product, but the yeah, upgrade yeah. path was not as good as it could have been. And I think you mentioned it really well, actually. If you can find ways to, it's okay to make your user leave your app if it's for the good reason mm. and at the right moment. Yeah. And if you can if you can optimize for that moment, then you, you're gonna for sure increase retention in the long run too, because mm -hmm. then you you you'll you won't have product fatigue. Right. There's a bunch of tests that that, that that comes with it. So definitely providing mm -hmm. exit points. That's that's a really good point. Another part is, I always wonder why we pay like for most of our experiences towards the end, like at the end. If you go for a massage. Yeah, well, it depends. Yeah. It depends like where, but yeah, yeah. if you go to a massage, you pay at the end, and it costs like let's say 150 bucks, and you're like, was that really? Worth yeah, it? yeah, right. Like, like you just had this great thing, and then you're like, oh my wallet. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but you wonder like if you would pay 150 bucks prior, then you would enjoy even more your right, massage, right? right? It has like a reverse psychology effect. So yeah, definitely peak and rule is is something really powerful that that you need to design for. You made me think of something uh, regarding providing exit points. So Duolingo, that's one of the things that I pointed out that they fell at. So mm -hmm. when you go through your journey, you basically have to complete certain lessons to have your daily goal. But as soon as you reach it, there is no end. So they just 
leave you in that endless feed of lessons yep. that you should go through. Oh, there's so many of them too. You look at it you're like, oh, can I ever get that far? It's like <laughs> anxiety inducing <laughs> yeah. almost, right? And that's one thing that I pointed out. If they just had, you know, a splash screen saying, hey, good job, you reach your goal. Mm -hmm. We'll see you tomorrow. So priming yeah. right there and then providing an exit point makes you a lot more likely to do it. And it's yeah. funny because Duolingo's team reached out afterwards and oh, said yeah. that they were they were considering something around that. So yeah. something to think about for your product. That's cool. Yeah, I think the 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 point of like user fatigue. I think I've gotten that with Facebook. I, I deleted the app from my phone just because I found myself like endlessly scrolling and then exactly. it just kind of never ends and never ends and then you open and then it never ends, right? There, I, I think people are people are starting to to like push against that, right? They realize that all these tools are built to just like keep you poking around forever exactly. and ever. And I think there's becoming more and more of a respect for that like, yeah, give me an exit point when I've completed the thing, let me feel good about it and then I'll come back later. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, let's jump to, what is it? We're at number six, familiarity bias. Familiarity bias, yes. Yeah, so basically we tend to develop a preference for things that we're familiar with, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if you you work in a product company, so you've probably heard this before, but if your colleague or, or CEO or whatever, he says, he looks at, an, at your app and it, or your design and he's like, that's not very intuitive. Yeah. <laughs> what he really means is it's not familiar to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the, the, the thing that you need to be careful with because intuitive is just another word for what's familiar to you as a person, yeah. what you've been exposed in your past, what's yeah. your, what your past experiences were like. So, so that's it. That's that's the I guess the definition for why would you use it is basically just to make your users really comfortable right from the start. If you have a new app or a new product and there's it's something new that users haven't seen before, yeah. then you need to you need to lay out the foundation where the patterns that you're using are actually familiar with other products. Yep. So how, how do you do that? Do you, do you look at other tool or other products and like take those patterns? Like how do you think about like making the thing familiar? Honestly, like to start with, you can just copy what the best do. Yeah. And that's, that's a really, I guess, simple start for you for you to take but because we're we're genetically genetically wired to actually to actually dislike change in a way yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah <laughs> so just by copying what the best do is a really good starting point remember snapchat i think it was two years ago they released like a full revamp of, the, of their ux and there was like everybody went crazy about yeah. it everybody <laughs> hated it they even signed a petition to actually change it back to yeah. what it was before because like the gestures weren't the same, navigation was completely different. So, but basically, what it what it was, it it felt unfamiliar to those yeah. to those uh, people. You should tell the story about um, the, like Tyler. Well, don't don't say his last name, but the, the person from our audience who thought that our case studies were something else. Yes, yes, that's really good. So when we first released our case study, it was with a tool called Slides. I won't get into the technical, but basically it was a fully immersive experience, right? Mm -hmm. But then when we when we actually did the web like our website, when we built our website, we thought like we would be smart about it and be like like create this whole new layout. Yeah. Where, like you had the case, the widget of the case study on top, and then we had like this full written analysis of like what we thought of of the case study mm -hmm. and everything. And since people weren't familiar with our type of story and our type of medium, they just scrolled right past the case study widget. 
and they started reading and they were like well that's a boring (laughs) another boring blog post right so i'm I'm just gonna turn and we we at the beginning when we launched our first case studies we were like why people are not watching the case study (laughs) yeah yeah. like we didn't understand we're like what what is going (laughs) on you know they're good yeah Yeah, exactly so then we reverted and we did like the full experience full um full screen but then that that was a good lesson for us uh, at that point yeah yeah that's awesome. Action, action items yeah. out of this? How action item? Well, I, I kind of said it before, but if you have a new app or a new product that's different from what's on the market, try to s- stick with familiar patterns that already exist. That's, I think that would be the best thing to do. Great. Let's jump to number seven, the endowment effect. Site tip number seven, the endowment effect. Yes, so we value things more once we feel like we own them. Mm-hmm. That's the basic premise of it. The, the thing with this is that people that are coming to your product, they see you as a stranger and we tend to forget that. We tend to, we have this, again, curse of knowledge where yeah, we're like, yeah. oh, our product is so great and people will love it. But truth is they get to it and we're like, this is not familiar and this is somebody else's product. And you have to find ways to make it feel like it's theirs incrementally and at the right time. Mm-hmm. So there is this thing again, I'll go back to the Trello case study and I show it very clearly in the case study. So if people want a visual example of that, they can go through it. When you get past the first few steps, so first of all, they change your mental model. They explain you side by side what a, a list is, what a board is, what a card is. Mm-hmm. And then they get you within a board itself that you pre-created. And once you get there, you have this like green background that's almost mm-hmm. like too flashy. And when I got it, I was like, oh, this is kind of confusing, you know, I don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't like it too much. And at that same moment, they have a prompt on the bottom right that says, hey, do you want to customize this? In one click, you can change the background. And they had this beautiful image from Unsplash, like mountains and yeah. valleys and whatever. And so when you click it, all of a sudden it changes your background to something extremely clean. Mm-hmm. And you kind of chose it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is brilliant. I'm wondering if this helps for activation or retention. And again, I spoke with the gentleman who was responsible for that, that growth team who led the initiative for the whole year. And what he told me was that they look at two main metrics. So they have a two in seven, which is two key actions within seven days, mm-hmm. and then four in 28. I think the guy from Adobe also talked about the 28-day retention thing uh, in your previous podcast. Yeah, yeah. So four actions in 28 days. And what he said was that it did not lift the activation to use the background feature, but it drastically lifted the retention for the four and 28, which is super interesting. And it also shows that the endowment effect acts on the longer term uh, and gets you back because you have a vested interest all of a sudden. You chose to make it yours. And I know that, I don't know if you still have the same onboarding. The last time I did it was, I think, a few months ago. But I know that drift very early makes you customize the brand. Is that correct? You pick the color, you upload your avatar, you set your company name, yeah. You pick the icon style. (laughs) So just doing that is actually the endowment effect. It makes you feel like you're building something that's partly yours now, not just something that's uh, somebody else's. Yeah. Very good point. So action item for that is right after your first aha moment within your activation is a great moment to ask for a small investment by the user. Mm-hmm. And that could be a small customization. It could be just making that part of your product feels like it's theirs so that they have a reminder and the trigger that they, they place by themselves in there uh, so that when you nudge them afterwards and you send them another external trigger, they, they don't just see you as a stranger. They see it as something that's also theirs. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I use Superhuman and they they kind of did this. I, I I did this to myself. They they told me that oh, if you want, you can customize the way that the swipes work on mobile, yeah. or mm-hmm. you know when you're going through your email and you 
set one as done, which order do you go in next, right? And I, and I changed those things early on, and now I feel like, all right, this thing is mine. Like, it works the way that I want it to work, and I, I like matched it to some of the patterns that I previously knew. And so all those things are intertwined, and the more that, I totally agree, the more that you think that something is yours and, and know that something is yours. Like even if something as simple as you set up your new MacBook, you make your user, and then you pick the little icon that shows up on the lock screen. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. that thing is yours. Like you pick the eagle. Oh yeah, that's that's my eagle. I picked it. Like you're always reminded of that. Precisely, yeah. That's great. All right. The the eighth and last one is an interesting one, which I, I feel like people are starting to talk about more and more, which is dark patterns. Yeah, exactly. Actually it's more it's not a tip per se, yeah. But it's more like a be aware of kind of thing, because I don't I don't want to do a bad joke, but with great power come mm -hmm. comes great responsibility, and I think that as product and growth expert, we have to be aware of what we're creating, and what we're creating as behaviors as well. Um, so basically, what what a dark pattern is is it's just a strategy to trick user into doing something that they they don't really want to do. Mm -hmm. You see it everywhere. Like it can take the form of scarcity. Yeah. If you try to book a hotel, uh, they're they're gonna be like red all over, saying 95% of those hotels are booked, only two two rooms left at that price, and it, like all those things. You have to, you need to ask yourself. Like there's there's one test that you can do, and it comes from Near Al. I don't know if you know Nir. He's uh, he's uh, the father of of uh, psychology, uh, well, behavioral psycho psychology, mm -hmm. and products. He wrote the the book uh, The Hook. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he like there's one test that there's one question that you can ask yourself, and it's called the regret regret test. Mm -hmm. It goes like this. I'm I'm just gonna read it because I'm gonna. If people knew everything the product team knows, would they still execute the intended behavior? And are people likely to re regret? doing this afterwards interesting yeah interesting. so it comes it comes back to what I was saying if if people actually regret taking action mm -hmm. then then you're doing something wrong with your product and you need to actually come back to the drawing board and say okay is, th is this okay is this yeah. okay that we do this right so yeah so that's I don't know if you have uh, any any thoughts on this but I think that was great that the thing that that makes this a lot more prominent right now in discussions within product circles mm -hmm. is the fact that before we used to look at conversions as just a short-term metric. Mm -hmm. And I feel like more and more people are aware of the importance of retention and the long-term impact of decisions that we make as product people. And when you realize that manipul like manipulants, I don't know how they call them, like when you, you have something that says, hey, do you want to get this free ebook? And it's like, yeah. yeah, please send it. Or no, I'm a dumb person who doesn't yeah. like to learn. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like that kind of stuff might lift short term yeah. if you're lucky, but at the end of the day, people remember your brand and your customer experience mm -hmm. a lot more than just a small lift that you got for a small experiment. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's user shaming, basically. That's yeah. what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, yesterday I was, I opened up Uber Eats just because I was pouring out and I was like, do I want to go walking up food or, or should, I, should I order something? And at the top, they added this new thing, which 
it, it's like uh, top picks for you, and you can scroll and pick like four or five, four or five there. And then there's a timer that counts down. It says like new picks will show up in four minutes and 59 seconds, four minutes and 50, 48 <laughs> seconds. And, and, and it makes me think back to what you said of uh, like if you knew what the product team knew, would you still do this? And I was like, there's no way that this timer matters. They're just trying to get me to pick something and order it before I realize that I actually can just get off my couch and go walk and get some food down the street. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, and that's a very good point. If you fake this cars, yeah. then it's worse because people will react the opposite way mm -hmm. that you're that you want them to do, that you want them to. So so yeah, be aware of like countdowns and everything. If if that's all fake, then try to stay away as uh, as far as possible. Yeah, that's a very good point. Makes sense. All right. Those are the eight tips. I, that was that was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed that. I know that you guys have a have like a bonus thing for the listeners. Yes. So to every listeners of this podcast, we prepared a little something. If you go to growth.design/hypergrowth, we prepared a summary of that of the psychological tips that we spoke about today, mm -hmm. with some checklists, some examples, linked to the direct case studies, and everything in there. So if you're interested, you want to run some interesting growth experiments, get some nice lift in your activation and retention. Go in their growth.design slash hypergrowth. Couldn't have said better. <laughs> that is great. All right, well, thank you guys again. I know this is one of these episodes that I am, I was just really excited to do, and then hearing, I know I learned a lot, and, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners learned uh, a bunch as well. So thank you again for joining. Thank you so much. Thanks like for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure. And as always, I'm going to wrap it up with my, my normal spiel. If you have any feedback, questions, whatever it might be, my email's matt at drift.com. Uh, if you love the podcast, I would really appreciate a review, and uh, I will catch you on the next episode. Can, can I slide oh, yeah, something yeah. in? Yeah, what do you got? I actually left a review in there. Okay. And I was very disappointed. Oh, no. Because I didn't see enough six stars reviews. Yeah. <laughs> I know that BC and DG did it. I yeah. did it. I know that we went in there and left a review as well. Yeah. People leave some six stars reviews. We, we really need them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I got to rethink the way that I'm asking for reviews. Maybe I'll do some Use priming. Some and... Exactly. Exactly. Right, that's good. That's exactly. Good. All right. Thanks, guys. Cheers. <laughs> thanks. Cheers. Oh, and one more thing before I go, because you're a listener. So Drift has its hypergrowth conference coming up in San Francisco on November 18th, and this is 2019. So far this year, we've had one in London and Boston, and they've been an amazing time. If you're interested, you're going to get a discount code. So you can go to hypergrowth.drift.com and sign up with the code GROWTH99, so all capitals, growth 99 with no spaces um, and if you happen to be listening to this at a future date november 18th is already passed no worries if it is now 2020 and you're trying to come to the hypergrowth in 2020 or beyond just send me an email to matt at drift.com and we'll figure something out for those hypergrowths if the growth 99 code doesn't work then all right thanks so much